the Political Animals, a podcast about sedition, insurrection, and revolution from a conservative perspective. I'm your lamenter-in-chief, Jonathan Cole, and this week we're talking capital insurrection. Well, 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 what a disgrace and what a tragedy. Is there anything, anything more unconservative than revolution? I've long been a despiser of revolutions of all stripes simply because I think 95% of them don't do any good. They end up making things worse or creating a lot of suffering just for the status quo ante to return or remain as de Tocqueville famously found in his own study of the French Revolution. He was shocked to learn that so many of what he and others took for granted to be the consequences of the revolution actually predated it. And in fact, very little had changed. I wasn't planning to do a podcast today. I'm actually still on holiday. So I'm sitting in my office in jeans and t-shirt. I dusted off the mic and plugged it into my trusty MacBook Air because I couldn't let this moment pass it. Uh, deserve some kind of commentary but this will be a short podcast you'll be grateful to know and apart from naming this as a disgrace and I'm really not going to say any more about that it's self-evidently disgraceful uh, particularly from a conservative perspective to completely ignore the constitutional order and then create disorder of this kind by a mob seizing control of one of the key institutions at the incitement, and I do believe it was incited, I do believe it's incitement, by Donald Trump and his enablers. I mean, what did he and other Trumpians think was going to happen after preaching day in, day out (laughs) to all of the um, true believers that this is a Democrat-led coup, a usurpation, a fraudulent election? This is a country founded on revolution. So when you trash the institutions to that level, you are actually giving license to people to disrespect them. In any event, you know, who wants to hear an hour's worth of discussion on how disgraceful it is? I simply name it for what it is and move on to the, for me, this former intelligence analyst, the more interesting things. And that is, I want to share a couple of preliminary reflections on what I think the ramifications of this seminal event. (laughs) We thought 2020 was a big year in US politics. Uh, (laughs) We need to strap ourselves in, or I hope you didn't take the seatbelt off because it looks like it's gonna be rocky and bumpy, a bit like a roller coaster. Anyway, I wanna share a couple of reflections, particularly on what I think the ramifications of this particular event will be for the Republican Party and the conservative movement in America. And then I'm going to actually end with what I think is the silver lining, perhaps only a slither of silver lining, but some silver lining nonetheless. Okay, what do I think this means? Uh, Obviously, we don't know how events will pan out. It could all be over by the time you're listening to this for all I know. And I know from my experience of being an intelligence analyst that predictions of actual events as they're underway and in flux and dynamic is an absolute mugs game. And I'm not going to be so foolish as to say what I think will happen vis-a-vis the, the capital and the protests and the insurrection and, and the like. 
I'm looking at the more longer term ramifications, which I think are pretty clear because this comes on the back of a sort of four to five year um, series of events. And so we have a pretty good picture and all we need to do is factor in this latest uh, momentous episode. Look, I think for me, this event makes it very clear if it wasn't beforehand that Donald Trump has successfully, that's the operative word, successfully and conclusively and comprehensively divided and conquered the Republican Party and probably the conservative movement that sits underneath it or on top of it, who knows. I think uh, the division has been apparent probably since the early period of his uh, regime. We had the whole never Trumpers, we've got like Trump zealots. So both sides have both sides of this sort of nascent division have elicited really passionate uh, convictions and disputes on both sides. But I think what this event is going to do is it's going to completely evaporate the no man's land, that comfortably large uh, area of ambiguity in between that has allowed a lot of Republicans um, to play both sides of the river. I think the line is so sharp now that you're going to be on one side or the other. And I think every Republican uh, elected representative, every Republican uh, official, every conservative commentator is going to be forced to be very, very transparently on one side of that line or the other. And so what I predict this will mean is that this will make the division, this will bring a division that has bubbled under the surface, sometimes bubbled up onto the surface, I think it's going to make it completely crystal clear and transparent. I think everyone's going to have to choose a side. And I think that then allows and paves the groundwork for what might be, I'm not saying this will happen, but I think it's now more likely than it looked (laughs) just a few weeks ago. Uh, And that is a formal split in the Republican Party. It would not surprise me if in the next 12 months a new conservative party is founded um, by, I don't know if you could want to call them never, never Trumpers, that sort of language seems a bit outdated and outmoded now, but we could see a new kind of rival on the centre-right, that is to the left of the Trumpians on the Republican Party, or we could see the Trumpian rump break away and found a rival party to the Republicans if the Mitch McConnells and the uh, Kevin McCarthy, I think his name is, the leader of the uh, minority leader in the House, apologies if, if I've got that wrong, I'm terrible with names, um, we could see the party party formally uh, split, which would be a pretty seminal development in the US. This has happened virtually in every other country, mind you. Um, including Australia, although that happened with the the Labour Party, more so than the right, although Cory Bernardi attempted it recently. And so I think uh, this is now possible in a way that it wasn't before. A new, effectively, you could have the old mainstream Republican Party uh, go back to its kind of uh, establishment footing, forcing the Trumpian figures to break away and found their own Trumpian party, or if the Trumpians uh, retain their vice-like grip on the party, which seems a little less likely now to me, then we might see others of the Ben Sass variety um, forced to leave the party 
on principle. That is, I'm sure their argument will be this party is, is no longer the party I, I joined and they will form a kind of rival conservative party that will be uh, Trump light. Look, when you factor in the rise of post-liberalism, the whole Trumpian phenomenon, the never-Trumpers, the old establishment Republicans, the rise of libertarianism over the last couple of decades, the old-school uh, traditionalists or paleoconservatives, Kirkian conservatives, uh, a camp to which I belong, although I'm not American, so I'm not really a part of this. I'm looking from the outside. Um, you know, on the right in America, in this Trump period, we've seen an absolute flux, a maelstrom of realignments, uh, new thinking, questioning of old uh, tenets and faiths and so I think this is going to compound and I think it might actually be the nail in the coffin of any uh, long any ongoing pretense at unity <laughs> and I think this split is going to have um, massive electoral ramifications going forward I think the the usual the, the sort of a uh, common occurrence in federal politics in the US where the opposition party often wins control of the Congress at the first midterm following the election of a new president. I think that's actually in huge doubt now for the Republicans. I mean, a divided party has no chance of conquering. It, it seems pretty clear now at the, the time I record this, which is going on 10 a.m. Uh, I've got no idea what day it is actually, Thursday. 7 January Australian time that the two Democratic Senate candidates have beaten their Republican candidates uh, I still think Joe Biden will take office on the 20th of January or soon thereafter if there's a mass protest that disrupts it which <laughs> seems I'm, I'm sure there are people that would like to do that but probably seems unlikely now in any event I think um we will expect vicious, vicious primary battles in 2022. Uh, continuing in 2024, I think virtually every Trump candidate will be primaried. Every non-Trump candidate will be primaried. And we'll, we'll see effectively an outright civil war on the right as a sort of a bloodbath in an attempt to capture control of what is left of this party that uh, is one of the oldest political parties in the world. I think the challenge for the Republican Party going forward is going to be the need and the challenge of finding a candidate, a presidential candidate, or even just a, a congressional leader, a minority leader now, who can unite these two <laughs> warring factions of the party. And indeed, I think this has to be done urgently, lest the party does split formally splinter as i've suggested now looks like a possibility in a way that wasn't just a couple of years ago certainly pre-trump it looked rock solid had its factions of course like any political party there is no political party that doesn't have factional infighting and uh disputes and contests for internal disputes and contests for power i think we're talking looking at something much much more uh serious now I think what they really need is a unifying figure, a bit like a Scott Morrison, someone who is pragmatic, 
before ideological. Someone who is able, either has or is able to establish relationships with both camps, able to garner the respect of enough people in both camps. Every leader has internal opponents. That's just par for the course. But I think they do need a unifying figure. And let's face it, the only way these two factions are going to unify is if the leader is pragmatic before ideological, as I say. And really, think about this. Uh, I know there are conservative critics of Scott Morrison. I know some of them personally who are concerned about him or suspicious that he's not a true blue conservative. But in a funny way, he is a classic Kirkian conservative, maybe even a Birkin conservative. Uh, that is, it's a kind of pragmatic wisdom that he, he applies to reality before any kind of ideological dogma that he just applies willy-nilly in spite of what developments are occur occurring. And I think he's shown that during the pandemic. Of course, he has displeased lots of... Uh, conservative ideologues but then he's a Kirkian conservative he's simply responded <laughs> with pragmatic prudence to events as they unfold without any care in the world for ideology remember this is really in my view what distinguishes a conservative from someone on the left they tend to be driven by ideology which is to say they have certain theoretical ideas about the way society functions about the way society ought to be and they believe so strongly in those theories that they will apply them and stick to them no matter how many times reality disproves them to be false. What's great about a kind of Kirkian slash Birkin conservatives is when you apply, when you view politics and policy as a practice of prudence and wisdom, you actually frees you to be wrong and to recognize that you're wrong and to ditch ideas that aren't working and to respond to circumstances to be more adaptive and nimble when they occur. So basically I think what the Republican Party needs is a kind of Scott Morrison-like figure. Of course, it's going to look a bit different in the American context. It's going to need to speak a language that can reach out to those Trumpian figures whilst also being someone who is a genuine conservative, in my view, respects the constitutional order of the United States, has a respect for institutions, and as Yuval Levin suggests in his book, A Time to Build, a conservative who actually believes enough in institutions to want to repair them, want to strengthen them, want to restore them to health rather than tear them down. And let's face it, what has Trumpian, what has Trumpism led to? It's led to the tearing down of the key institutions. I mean, this is why the far left and far right meet in a circle rather than being uh, equidistant in a straight line. I mean, I think Antifa's probably cracking open the beers. They seem to be fundamentally an anarchist outfit to me or have an anarchist agenda. So they're probably loving the way that these uh, MAGA supporters are trashing one of the key institutions that is, let's face it, a roadblock to their radical left agenda. Both the, <laughs> the sort of most radical left, which in my book is anarch anarchism, not communism or socialism. And on the far right, this kind of anti-institutional populism. And I know there's more to that than, than Trumpism, but this seems to be its key feature. And we're seeing that at the moment. They meet because they both have a common agenda just for different reasons. And that is they want to tear down institutions. I'm not sure what the populists want to put in their place. I think they just want to 
capture them in a kind of uh, power play. The anarchists want to tear them down, but of course, anarchists, if in power, are just going to recreate other institutions. They'll pretend they're not institutions, but effectively, it just amounts to a power grab as well. And uh, whether we live in the anarchist or the populist right wing nirvana, effectively, they'll end up as uh, totalitarian dictatorships, in my view. Now, the silver lining that I wanted to finish with, and like I say, this is a slither of silver lining. I mean, what, what's happening is not only disgraceful, it's it's tragic. I mean, I, this, this, this really is an assault on uh, democracy, just to channel the old bloke's um, line. I have to agree with him uh, there, even though I don't think he inspires in, in me at least the sort of great hope that he's going to be the have the strength and fortitude to do what needs to be done to repair it. Look, I think the silver lining from a conservative point of view, and again, I'm a cooking conservative, so I, you know, there are other forms of conservatism. And clearly, if you uh, disagree with my kind of conservatism, then you won't see this as a silver lining. And if you're even the bees appendage to the left of the conventional left-right spectrum, then there is no silver lining. And Every conservative should probably hang for the collectively for the crimes of the the few. That is a pretty good left wing view of the world. Collective responsibility. The North Koreans excel at this. I don't know if you know this, but they actually in, in, sometimes imprison, imprison, and uh, brutally oppress second, third, fourth generation uh, children, grandchildren, great grandchildren of um, people that have citizens that have been convicted of treason there's this kind of idea of collective uh punishment and we live in a very unforgiving world at the moment anyway that's a bit of a a sidetrack so let me get back to the silver lining i think the silver lining is that what we are seeing i think the trump phenomenon was so powerful that it had to run its full course i don't actually think there was any way to fight it i mean the the guy was successful he won won an election fair and square in 2016 and he has a broad base of popular support and he has a a level of passionate support of people that are willing to effectively commit crimes in the name of supporting him and his presidency and his agenda so I think it had to run its full course. The silver lining is that I think its its logical conclusion is now exposed for what it is. I think the certainly the post-election Trump, and I do think he lost the election, I actually think he's deluded. I don't think he's cynical in this case. I think he genuinely believes he won a landslide victory in spite of there being virtually no credible evidence. <clears throat> There's a lot of things purporting to be evidence and i think this insurrection ultimately goes back to the delusions of one man ably fed by crackpots around him and i think for me the real tragedy is a cons- of of this episode as a conservative is that i, I think the these uh, men and women who have seized the capitol building i don't think they realize that the whole thing goes back to the delusion of one man. They've been sold, they've imbibed one man's deluded inability to accept that he lost an election, whether because of his narcissism or, you know, his daddy didn't love him or whatever. It's immaterial what the reasons are. 
Uh, so I think the silver lining is that I think the, the reckoning has to happen. And I think the that thin line I spoke of earlier, that division becoming transparent, I think was always going to happen. I, I always thought there would be a reckoning with Trump's legacy, but I thought the Republicans might get the luxury of having some years to kind of deal with that like most losing parties do in the normal course of events. And so I think as painful and tragic and dangerous actually as this is, needs to be exposed for what it is. And it's going to force certain Republicans to try and locate their testicles, which have been missing in for people like Pence, who I think has at least found one of them in the last moments and, and finally stood up to Trump and copped the barrage on Twitter that he was always going to cop. But quite frankly, uh, Pence needs to do that if he's going to have any hope in hell of winning the uh, prim- primaries in 2024. And I think it just forces people to choose sides. So that, that goes for the Ted Cruz's and Josh Hawley's. I think the American people deserve to know who the true, <laughs> true Trumpians are and who those are who are willing to stand against him and then that will pave the way for the fight that i think again will be tragic but is unavoidable and needs to happen for the heart and soul of the republican party because ultimately one side needs to win and look if the trumpian side wins it wins that's fine in my view i mean not fine in in the sense of i think it would be better for conservatives if he didn't win but if he does win then I get. Then again, things settle, and the Americans have a clear choice between two parties. But it's really confusing having a party that is at war with itself. I don't think that's actually good for democracy, uh, because I actually do believe in political parties. Because uh, in very large republics like the U.S., you simply need vehicles and frameworks around which people can coordinate their activity, and. I actually do think a two-party democracy is rather healthy if the two parties function well. I'm actually with a certain strain of conservative thought in the US by the Jonah Goldbergs. And again, I think Yuval Levin is in this camp where they think one of the problems with American politics uh, related to that institutional decline and the weak institutions is that the institutions of the parties themselves have become really weak. And I think populism is a consequence of that or perhaps a cause who can never disentangle cause and effect in that respect. So look, I know <laughs> I might sound like a ridiculously naive uh, silver lining here, but I say it's a silver lining because I think this was inevitable and I think it has happened in an obviously a non-ideal way, but I think the Republican Party has to have this reckoning. I think they have no choice but to have this fight now. And it is a test of conviction, principle, and courage. It's going to be very ugly. Uh, And I do hope the non-Trump forces win because I actually think that would be better for America and better for conservatives. Because when you think about it, the non-Trump faction... Uh, they believe in all of the things that I liked about Trump. You know, they they have the capacity to be good on immigration, to have good economic policy, to be good on foreign policy, to be good on abortion. I mean, none of these things are distinctively Trump. These are all actually pretty mainstream Republican positions in one form or another. You know, 
Supreme Court nominations. I mean, any Republican would have... No Republican was, was going to nominate a Merrick Garland, let's face it. Uh, what is distinctive about Trump is his anti-institutionalism <laughs> and his populism. Uh, and that is the, the part that is a- antithetical to everything the Republican Party has stood for. And in my view, that conservatism should su- support. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of risible hearing Trump and his sycophants tweet out, oh, you know, we're the party of law and order. We've got to respect law, law and order. Well, I'm sorry, you're not the party of law and order. Not anymore under Trump. You may have started that way. And that, that was a good line when it was uh, left-wing lunatics looting and pillaging the town in what I, I think does qualify as a revolution. That was equally disgraceful and reprehensible. And the feeble attempts of uh, the left, including Joe Biden, I mean, that guy couldn't have been weaker when it came to BLM violence and incitement. Uh, but <laughs> the shoe's on the other foot now. Uh, you know, it did make me laugh out loud reading Trump. Trump <laughs> try and pretend that uh, he's the law and order candidate as he tries to overturn the outcome of a, an election using exactly, mind you, the same process that put him in power in 2016. It's not like they've changed the constitutional process right now. So I think it, it is a something of a silver lining. And I do believe in the battle of ideas, and I th- I, including on the right. And the right, in my view, has become far too doctrinaire, far too unwilling to have a debate. It's become so caught up in its battle with the left that it believes that you cannot criticize friends because you're in the trenches. And this is an existential struggle where... Um, life and death are at stake but uh, i actually actually think obviously you don't want to have this battle of ideas in the form of violence there's no need for that that's not actually what a battle of ideas or a contest of ideas means and perhaps i should ditch the the sort of warlike language of battle but i think it actually would be uh this is just to put put the final little bit of silver in my lining here i think it, it would be very healthy if the right now could pull back, realize the folly of its incendiary rhetoric, and actually have a proper contest of ideas, you know, without all these free speech warriors who sort of uh, crumble at the first bit of criticism from their own side, you know, we, the right needs to sort itself out. The world has changed. A lot of its old ideas have become questionable. That's all. That's all fine. I mean, I think the whole post-liberal thing i'm a critic of that and i think i simon and i tackled that in the first episode of the political animals and i think i was critical of it then i remain critical of it now but it's fascinating it's a welcome contribution to discourse on the right i love it i mean i, I love all these ideas i the, the whole populism thing you know write, write books about it have conferences talk about it come up with policy proposals i nothing is off game in the realm of ideas in my view but on the right it's really become about power and you know because it's about power people don't want to hear information or ideas that challenge their own convictions all right i might leave it there just coming in on 30 minutes i think this will be the shortest podcast of the political animals uh i was planning to start a regular transmission 
next Monday, and I think I will still be able to do that. And I have a, a topic lined up, but until then, let's all sit back and watch these events with great anxiety and consternation and pray that they are resolved soon and that America can get back to um, normal day-to-day dysfunction. Mm-hmm.